Aguilar, and this is your Calls Media Roundtable. This morning, the top UN court ordered Israel to take all measures to prevent a genocide in Gaza. It also ordered the Israeli government to ensure its military does not violate the Genocide Convention and immediately provide humanitarian aid to Gazans. Scholars say this is an historic ruling. Roz Segal is an Israeli historian, Holocaust, and genocide scholar. This morning, he told Democracy Now! that the court ordered Israel to cease from any genocidal acts, which de facto is a ceasefire. This is uh, uh, really an unprecedented uh, ruling. It signals, uh, uh, first and foremost, the end of Israeli impunity in the international legal system, which is huge, right? Israel has enjoyed impunity in the international legal system for decades in the face of mounting evidence of gross violations of international law, uh, of uh, uh, mass violence, occupation, siege, so on. This is the end of that era. Uh, so it's just the beginning of a process that it really, I think, now... Uh, with a ruling that basically recognizes the plausibility uh, of genocide, uh, the fact that Israel is likely committing genocidal acts. Uh, This is the beginning of a process of isolating uh, Israel because any university, company, state now uh, will have to consider uh, moving forward, whether it continues or doesn't continue in many cases, I think, to engage with Israel because it is likely committing genocide. This also legally triggers third state's state responsibility uh, on issues of prevention and complicity uh, with genocide. And this is significantly important today, where in a few hours in a court in Florida, will, uh, there will be the hearing in the case that the Center for Constitutional Rights uh, has brought against uh, Biden Lincoln and Austin, indeed, on complicity with genocide, U.S. complicity with genocide and the failure to prevent uh, uh, genocide. So this might have actually uh, uh, a certain effect even on this case today in California and moving forward. So this is really unprecedented. That is Roz Segal, an Israeli historian and Holocaust and genocide scholar on this morning's Democracy Now! The New York Times reports that Aharon Barak, Israel's appointed justice on the 17-member ICJ panel, broke with most of the other justices in rejecting some of the measures ordered by the court, but he joined with the majority in calling on Israel to, quote, prevent and punish incitement to genocide, as well as to enable humanitarian relief to reach God. To get more details about this ruling, we are joined by Akbar Shahid Ahmed, Senior Diplomatic Correspondent for HuffPost. Hi, Akbar. Thank you for joining us again. Thanks for having me, Rose. So can you tell us what stands out for you uh, based on what you've read about the court's decision? Absolutely. Um, I've read parts of the decision. I was watching it live when it came and talked to legal scholars about it, uh, foreign officials. I think the really important top line is that the court was asked by Israel to throw aside the idea that it could even be accused of genocide. And the fact that the court has accepted there is a plausibility of genocide here is a huge deal. It's it's from that that all these other orders that you talked about flow, right? And it's striking, as you noted, that the Israeli judge um, did side with two of the measures, uh, kind of 
at some level accepting that there is a risk here of genocide and this looks and sounds a whole lot like genocide. I think a lot of folks who were following this um, are perhaps disappointed or confused because in the public discourse, certainly in the activist discourse, there's a real popularity of the terms genocide and ceasefire. I think we have to remember this is an international court of law. It is fundamentally a conservative body. They are very, very cautious about using the word genocide. It will take them years to even come close to saying we think that's what this is. But I think the significance, Rose, is that they've accepted that there is a serious enough risk that they've outlined six steps that they want Israel to take. And importantly, they've given Israel a one-month deadline saying, you need to come back and report to us. And the reason this is different from uh, the U.S. is already saying, hey, we're telling Israel to not kill civilians, we're telling Israel to let in aid. We don't know what the Israelis are telling the U.S. And my sources inside the U.S. government tell me the Israelis are not giving very convincing arguments that they're doing that. Now that the court has required it, Israel will have to produce a report that will go to the court. The court will give it to South Africa, they've said, and South Africa could publish it. So for the first time as a result of this process, we'll actually get details of what the Israeli assessments are on civilian casualties, aid, and alleged war crimes. How will this be enforced? So the court, uh, you know, is, is not like a federal court. It doesn't have bailiffs uh, who can do, go do its work for it. But this is the chief legal organ of the United Nations. So what that means is that all UN member states are party to this court. So that's two important names of enforcement. One is that every UN member state now has to abide by this. It is legally binding on all of them, and they have to encourage it to be abided by, which creates responsibilities for the US. One route you could see is a UN Security Council resolution, which the US as a permanent member could veto. They certainly don't want to be seen as vetoing that because they talk about international law a lot. Um, And the other form of enforcement is kind of more quiet pressure from all these state parties, right? And that could take a whole range of, uh, of, of methods. I mean, that could be reducing, um, actual armed support for Israel because for a lot of these countries, they are putting themselves at legal risk. It's not clear by continuing to support Israel. So if you're a European country, even if you're the US, you could now be implicated in the potential charge of genocide. So they may start to recalibrate their support slowly, maybe their support diplomatically, maybe start calling for a ceasefire. I think you'll see those signs in the coming days. What does this mean for Gazans? Uh, who are being bombarded. We know that there is no safe place. Uh, yes. The latest death toll, official death toll, is 26,000. Right. And that 26,000 is in, unquestionably a huge lowball figure, right? Because we do not know how many hundreds, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people are trapped under the rubble of bombed-out apartment buildings and shelters. Uh, what it means for Gazans... Unfortunately, the humanitarian conditions, the conditions in which, you know, mothers are giving unsafe births, the conditions in which people don't have clean water, and there's bombs raining from the sky, that's not going to change today. It probably won't change tomorrow. But what it does mean is that you have the highest court in the world that every world government is a party to made a very important declaration today. They said the Palestinians in Gaza are a protected group. That's never been said before. So now, again, that goes back to the legal implications. As this suffering continues in Gaza, as Israel's U.S.-backed offensive, an offensive that would not be possible without American assistance, as that continues, 
it implicates everyone in attacks against a protected group under international law. And, and, and then, of course, there are 133 hostages still being held in Gaza. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the court called for, important to remember, the court called for an immediate uh, an unconditional release. But something to understand about the court's jurisdiction is that it only deals with issues between state governments, which is why this was a case in which South Africa was coming up against Israel. The court does not have jurisdiction over Hamas as a non-state actor and an armed group. So it's Hamas holding the hostages. But to, to my earlier point about how this creates international pressure, I think this could encourage Qatar, uh, which has a relationship with Hamas, and Egypt, other countries that can push Hamas, it encourages those countries to kind of lean on Hamas more on the hostage front. Haaretz is reporting that the White House said President Biden spoke with uh, Qatari leader Sheikh Tamim bin Hamad al-Tani to discuss the latest developments in Israel and Gaza, including efforts to secure the release of all of the hostages. Right. And, and the Qataris are at the center of this, Rose, because they, uh, they are the, the only kind of trusted mediator, right? I mean, Israel has allowed them to send humanitarian aid to Gaza for years and years, kind of relied on that. The U.S. has trusted them with Hamas, with the Taliban. All of that to say, there's a, there's a lot of calculus going on here. And, and as this ruling today showed you, as UN votes have showed you, the U.S. and President Biden, as they're trying to thread this needle, cannot just rely on U.S. superiority or bullying and telling other players what to do. They'll have to create incentives for Hamas, for the Qataris, for the Israelis to move towards peace if that's what they want. And what about a response from the United States to this ruling? Uh, To my knowledge, we haven't seen a formal one yet. We did see Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu come out and speak. Uh, You've seen some partial ones, and I I just know... uh, the U.S., the Biden administration has been so incoherent in its discussion of the Gaza war now for four months. So you've seen two things. Uh, the U.S. Deputy Ambassador to the U.N., Ron Wood, came out and said, we continue to believe the ICJ case against Israel is baseless. Now, that doesn't square with what the Israeli Prime Minister said, which is, we respect the ICJ, we will not commit genocide. Um, and I actually got some other U.S. officials internally telling me they had a plan in place for this where they are planning to say, oh, well, we wanted this anyway. I mean, the ICJ is just saying what we've been looking for. So I think the U.S. will have to figure out, is it a basis claim or is it what your policy has been? And we'll see that later today. Akbar Shahid Ahmed is senior diplomatic correspondent for HuffPost, who's, who's been extensively covering all of these issues. Akbar, thank you for your reporting. Thank you for joining us again. Thank you so much, Russ. Thank you. Well, a couple of weeks after the October 7th Hamas attacks in Israel, our next guest, journalist Ramita Navai, went to the West Bank to report for Frontline on the effects of the attacks and Israel's war on Gaza, which is just 50 miles away. She focused on the increase in violence against Palestinians by extremist Israeli settlers and growing support for Hamas and other groups in the West Bank. She spoke with Palestinians and Israelis about what is happening on the ground. She and her team made a documentary called Israel's Second Front. You can find it online now. Ramita Navai is an Emmy award-winning investigative journalist, documentary filmmaker, and author. She's reported from over 40 countries and has made over 30 documentaries and features. Hi, Ramita. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. 
Well, given that you went to the West Bank just a couple of weeks after the Hamas attacks, do you have any response to the ruling from the ICJ this morning? That I would say that it's really important to note and what struck me being in the West Bank is that what happens in Gaza um, and rulings like the ICJ ruling really affect Palestinians in the West Bank. They are watching the horrors unfolding in Gaza, Gaza, the daily killing um, in Gaza uh, with all their attention. And they are grieving, they are mourning because the people in the West Bank are tightly and closely connected to people in Palestinians in Gaza, their family, their friends, their neighbors. So yeah, I, I think it will have a big effect. Let's focus on why you went and and what it was like for you to to get around. You say that you had a hard time getting around because your Palestinian producer, because he's Palestinian, um, and since October 7th, roadblocks have been set up and Palestinians cannot use many roads. So that made it difficult. You based yourself in Ramallah instead of East Jerusalem, which is where most journalists tend to stay. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. So, yeah, getting around has become even more difficult for Palestinians in the West Bank. It was already pretty hard. But now, of course, for Israel, security concerns, um, and of course, as there should be security concerns and security measures put in place, but these measures are collective measures. And what it means is that if you're like our wonderful Palestinian producer, Ahmed, who has all the right papers, all the right accreditation, um, a journey that can take 20 minutes will end up taking four hours. He'll simply be turned away at checkpoints. So, you know, we'd get into a, we'd get to a checkpoint. In, in, in a car with Israeli number plates, by the way, it's a, a two-tiered system in the West Bank in Israel um, that Palestinians can't use many of the roads. Uh, so we had a car that had Israeli number plates, which meant we could use the best roads in the West Bank that Palestinians are banned from using. Uh, would get to a checkpoint and IDF soldiers would just simply ask, is there a Palestinian in the car? As soon as they realized there was a Palestinian in the car, it didn't matter he had all the right papers and accreditation, uh, would be turned away. And that happened time and time again. You write that when you were focusing specifically on what is happening with Israeli settlers, that could be very tricky because you were with a Palestinian producer. So let's talk about what you found here. One of the issues that's been getting a lot more attention after the October 7th attacks has been the rise in extremist violence against Palestinians in the West Bank. This week, Yuval Abraham of Plus 972 magazine reported that under the cover of war, 16 Palestinian villages in the West Bank, home to over a thousand people, have been entirely depopulated as a result of a surge in settler violence. Tell us more about what you found. Yeah, I, I, I went to those areas um, that he's talking about, actually, um, and they are just you know villages that are empty now, schools that are empty. People fled because of this rising violence. Now, this violence has been rising over the last few years, but it is increased under cover of war, as that author said, um, since October 7th. Since October 7th, at least eight Palestinians have been killed by extremist settlers. As worrying as that, not one Israeli settler has been charged for any of these killings. And by the way, you know, these are small places. 
settlements are right next to Palestinian uh, villages. Everybody knows who everybody is, and you can see the perpetrators' faces in some of the videos. Some of these killings are caught on camera. So this is another aspect, that there's near impunity for these extremist settlers. You also focus on West Bank's West Bank raids by the Israeli military. When you were in Tolkoram, you were told that three Palestinian men were killed the day before. Armed Palestinians you interviewed said they were civilians. The Israeli military said they were hauling explosives. You, you show video in your documentary about streets that were torn up, the electricity and the water lines were cut by Israeli bulldozers, which the military says it uses to destroy explosives. And you spoke with Abdul Rahman Abrado, an English teacher. He told you that during these raids, Israeli forces routinely leave neighborhoods in ruins. And he said that young men are joining these armed groups because of all of this, because of what they see every day, because of the occupation. And he says, if this continues, more and more people are going to join the violence. Can you tell us more about that and what you learned? Yeah, well, he's absolutely right. So what's really interesting is that in the West Bank, uh, three years ago, these armed groups, these militant groups, they weren't there. They didn't exist. Like the Ginian Brigades, like the Tulkran Brigades, they were all born uh, a year ago or two years ago. So what's been happening is that you can link the birth of these militant groups to the increase in Israeli military incursions into places like Janine Refugee Camp, Tulkram Refugee Camp. Now, over 350 Palestinians have been killed so far in the West Bank since October 7th. Most have been killed during these raids, during these Israeli military incursions. And the majority are not militants. You know, civilians are getting killed. So when we were in Janine, we caught a raid. Raids can last for several days, by the way. This raid, I think it was about 16 hours long. Um, when the, but by the way, what the teacher said that these places are left in ruins, they, they are literally left in ruins because I, I witnessed it. So what happens is, you know, columns of armored vehicles and armored bulldozers roll into town carrying hundreds of troops. They go into these small refugee camps like Janine. They use drone strikes. They are targeting civilians. Uh, sorry, sorry. They are targeting militants. Um, and of course, you know, Israel, of course, should be worried and has a right to be scared for its security after October 7th. But what's happening is that these raids aren't always very accurate. So civilians are getting killed. So when we were in Janine, uh, two children were killed, an eight-year-old and a 15-year-old. They weren't killed by a drone strike, by the way. Uh, they were killed by soldiers shooting, shooting at a street where there were kids. Um, and the drone strikes, of course, uh, they should be accurate. For some reason, they're not accurate. You know, I visited uh, homes that had been struck. You know, there was one home, there were three old women living in this home, nobody else in that home. Um, and it was completely destroyed, utterly destroyed. We're speaking with Ramita Navai, an Emmy Award-winning investigative journalist and documentary filmmaker. Just a few weeks after the October 7th Hamas attacks in Israel, she went to the West Bank and then went again in January. And she and her team made a documentary about what is happening on the ground called Israel's Second Front. 
you know, Ramita, so much of the footage that you got, we, we just rarely see. And you definitely don't hear about the after effects. And, and I've been wondering why this isn't getting more attention. I mean, it's it's being mentioned in some circles. Um, I think even a member of the Mossad was talking about this, who who basically said, this is what drives people to join these militant groups. And you actually spoke with some people who said that the occupation, the war, these raids are galvanizing them. Their focus is on resisting the occupation. They said armed struggle is the only option because the politics have failed. You know, given that this doesn't get that much attention, what do you want people to know about some of these conversations you had with these young people? Yeah, so I, I would say that's absolutely correct, that it's not just young armed men. Uh, it's not just militants uh, who obviously believe violence is the only way. More and more Palestinians are losing hope in any peaceful, the possibility of peaceful negotiations. More and more Palestinians are saying that armed resistance and struggle, that violence is the only answer because they say, well, look, you know, we've been trying peaceful negotiations for years and years and years and what's been happening. Well, what's been happening is in the last two years, uh, Palestinians in the West Bank uh, are being routinely attacked during these Israeli military incursions. And they feel now that they are being collectively punished they feel that there's collective punishment going on because of what Hamas did in Gaza which is not the West Bank so I think that's one important thing to to consider I think another important point is as you say you know rightly the focus is on Gaza with tens of thousands killed so far and thousands and thousands of children killed and being killed every day However, you know, any hope for peaceful negotiations, any hope for peaceful, you know, paving the way to a two-state solution will never happen without the issue of the settlements in the West Bank being resolved. And that's because if you think of the West Bank, you know, you think of this kind of Palestinian territory, whereas actually this Palestinian territory uh, is peppered with Israeli settlements. Some of these Israeli settlements are illegal, even under Israeli law. There are over half a million Israeli settlers in the West Bank. Uh, and what's happening is that these settlements are fast growing, that since October 7th, Israeli extremist Israeli settlers are grabbing, stealing more and more Palestinian land. So that's something I think that's also really important to understand is that you have to understand that the issue of settlements and the expansion of settlements that's been so rapid as is, is an increasing um, is an impediment to peace. In our remaining minutes, can you tell us what stood out for you based on the interviews you did with Palestinian scholars, Israeli scholars and government officials? I would say that it's uh, lack of hope. Um, I would say that it's uh, powerlessness, the, the Palestinians feel powerlessness, uh, powerless, um, as the settlements expand, um, and as this violence against Palestinians increases, there is near impunity, as I said, for, uh, the extremist settlers, and there's nothing Palestinians can do about it. So there is a Palestinian authority, uh, that was set up to administer parts of the West Bank following the peace process of the 1990s, and it is completely ineffective, uh, corrupt. Uh, many Palestinians think it's corrupt as well, but it is not a body that um, protects the security and the rights of the Palestinians. And if you look at the Palestinians, well, there is no body that protects 
the rights of the Palestinians. There is no body that can protect them against violence. And that is why most Palestinians I spoke to uh, said that they think peaceful negotiations are no longer working. Armed resistance is the only way because they feel constantly let down. So I think that's the really important part to understand. You know, before we talk about the re- reaction from Israelis, what what is the end game for the the some of the younger people that you met who are joining these armed groups? End of occupation, and that's not just for armed men. You know, that's for any Palestinian. The reality of living under occupation is that it's a pretty brutal experience living under military occupation. You know, we look at parts of Ukraine, we look at different areas in the world, there have been military occupation, the whole world is up in arms. Yet Palestinians have been living under a strict, hard, violent military occupation for for decades. So that is what all Palestinians want. They want an end to military occupation in the first, in the, in the first instance. And what stood out for you during the interviews you did with Israelis? With Israelis, I would say, first of all, I would say I met some amazing Israelis. You know, I met some Israeli peace activists who were traveling to the West Bank and helping, trying to protect uh, Palestinian farmers when they were trying to harvest their olives because they're harvesting their olives and they get shot at by extremist Israeli settlers. And that's happening all over the West Bank. And that violence is, you know, becoming a normal occurrence. So they were amazing Israelis. The politicians I spoke to, um, uh, you know, they are rightly scared, you know, as well. They are rightly scared since October, since October 7th, um, about the state of security for Israel. So, of course, you know, they must be listened to and they are scared. But I would say that there seems to be a deep gulf between what they believe are the next moves and what they believe can be possible for a two-state solution and what is actually happening on the ground in the West Bank. They're pretty divorced from reality. Ramita Navai is an Emmy Award-winning investigative journalist and documentary filmmaker. A few weeks after the October 7th Hamas attacks, she went to the West Bank to report from many, many places in the West Bank, and then she returned again in January. She and her team then made a documentary called Israel's Second Front, and you can find it online. Ramita, thank you so much for your work, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Coming up after a break, we will talk about what explains the crisis of chronic absenteeism in U.S. schools. This is Your Calls Media Roundtable. We'll be back after this.